So you recently graduated from UCSB in the Chicano Studies Department, correct? Correct, yeah. So what now? Um, well, rest, for sure. I mean, it's been a hectic year. It's the, uh, finishing up my requirements for the BA, I also finished a minor in Indigenous Studies, um, which I started last year. Um, um, and I guess it's different being a transfer student, um, coming from Santa Barbara City College, um, being a single father, working full-time, being a full-time student. My trajectory and my educational path has looked a little different than other students. Um, but luckily, I have had a lot of... Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know people and have connections that uh, after school, um, I, I have... Um, a more clear idea of like what I'm going to be doing. You know, I've been tutoring at Santa Barbara City College for about five years, a little more. It's the, their Chicano Studies Department as well. So I'm going to continue doing that. And as, as that includes a little bit of lecturing and tutoring over the summer. You do lectures? It's going to be of more like an informal type of lecture. So I'm doing uh, half and half with the professor. He's he's going to be doing one day and I'm going to be doing the other day. Carrasco? Yes, Professor Carrasco from City College. Yeah, so it's he's given me the opportunity to not only help tutor and reiterate what he's teaching, but kind of push the things that I'm interested in as well, like the things that right. I'm researching right now or interested. Yeah, and what are some things you could do with Chicano Studies if you like, you know, pursue that career? Yeah, I mean, personally, I enjoy the teaching aspect and interacting with 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 people in a classroom setting. Uh, I'm a big history nerd. You know, I like I like to get into to history. I also like the theoretical um, and political and the organizing activism aspect of Chicanx studies. Uh, I I like the intersectional um, interdisciplinary aspect of it. So it has a lot of Poli sci, you know, some political science into it. Like I said, history, um, the community uh, a- a- organizing aspect of it, and particularly in in our school, it has a very deep history with Chicanx studies being the birthplace of Chicanx studies, the first uh, school to have the department and to have the PhD in Chicanx studies is UCSB. And they created Mecha, right? Yeah. Well, that was the the creation of El Plan de Santa Barbara. Mm. Which uh, out of there came not only Mecha, but uh, the UCSB's unique uh, chapter of Mecha, El Congreso, and uh, the framework for Chicano studies that was all like worked out during El Plan de Santa Barbara in 1969. Um, that opened up the framework for Chicano studies to not only just be like uh, elective, but um, available in higher education as well. Like I said, personally, for me, that che- the teaching aspect uh, calls my attention a lot. So that's probably where I'll be heading uh, towards the most. Um, there's also the uh, community outreach aspect of it. 
um, there's a lot of things that you can do with Chicano studies, like that it, it helps you with later on in life. There's not necessarily like one thing that Chicano studies is preparing you for, like engineering or something like architecture. It's a lot more um, diverse. You can use it with other um, disciplines, like it, it pairs very well with political science, um, sociology, you know, uh, ethnic studies. It's, it's, it really is just a branch of ethnic studies which includes uh, African-American studies, Asian studies, Native American studies. Um, and right now there's a big uh, demand for specifically high school teachers that are ethnic studies, Chicanx studies, Black studies, um, that have their degrees in that because the, a lot of high school requirements are now um, including ethnic studies or Chicanx studies as a, a graduation requirement. So um there is a lack of qualified teachers right now, um, that, which includes high, uh, colleges, but high schools is more predominant. Yeah. And that differs from state to state, right? Because in Arizona, ethnic For studies sure. is actually illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you've ever seen the movie uh, Precious Knowledge. Yeah. I've, um, Professor Carrasco showed it in one of his classes. Este, it details what happened in the early 2000s with... Uh, with yeah, what they call Raza studies over there. They called it Raza studies. And of course, it was attacked... I saw some of the clips. Yeah. 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 So like the city, the city council members were like attacking it, saying it was racist or like basically the same talking points you'll hear now about critical race theory. Um, And basically anything that's like quote unquote ethnic studies based or uh, critical of the U.S. as a colonial power um, or anything that brings attention to indigenous or marginalized people's Anything that's empowering, all of that is seen as threatening. So, like the same rhetoric is used to demonize it, right? That it's like not inclusive, that it's um, communist, or that it's you know incites anti-American sentiment. You know, which is ironic because all it's doing is like bringing up history. It's like putting up a mirror, and you're finally talking about like uh, true history, and then you're, you're saying that that's that's anti-American. Well, I mean, what does that say about about our history, right? About not our history, but the U.S.'s history. Um, that like only a certain narrative is only available for the masses where, you know, if you go into Chicano studies and other studies around that arena, you're able to kind of really dive in and immerse yourself in some of the studies that aren't portrayed in mainstream American teaching, right? Yeah, definitely. Um just like the stuff that the U.S. is involved in politically, when it involves people of color, it involves uh, imperialism. Uh, a lot of the stuff is relegated to the past and in, in, like mainstream society, not really talked about as if it was still current issues. Um, what, right now, what's coming to mind is you know being a student at UCSB. Um, Part of it is is the imposter syndrome and from feeling out of place, but also feeling incredibly guilty, just knowing, just being part of an institution that perpetuates the colonial structure. I mean, we're on uh, stolen Chumash land. Uh, the university was built on top of village sites, right? It was it, it actively participated in the colonization of Goleta, of so-called Goleta, of the land that we're still on. Um, and then the, the Chumash folks don't have that much access to the university. So then it's it's like a, a gate gate kept, right? As they, on top of that, not only do they also have um, Chumash ancestors housed in storage units that are that have not been returned to um, to the communities, 
But as an institution, uh, the UC system as whole, as you know, is involved in very nefarious things uh, like Mauna Kea, to say the least, is something that uh, we've been focusing a lot in. Um, What's that? The last quarter. Mauna Kea is um, a sacred site in Hawaii. Um, for the native people of Hawaii, um, obviously I'm not the, uh, the most expert in it, but it's a, a classic case of the U.S. using using extractivism. Uh, it, it, it's a mountain on Hawaii, and the project is to build a astron- astronomy observatory on there. Um, and it's not the only one. There are already several on, on this mountain. It's one of the t- uh, tallest mountains in the world, and supposedly it would be a great vantage point to, to study the cosmos and whatnot uh, at the cost of contaminating and destroying and like ancestral sacred land to Damn. the current Kanaka, uh, uh, Hawaiian people. So our university is directly implicated in that. Chancellor Yang uh, is personally implicated in that. Um, not only the extractivism that happens when constructing something like that, um, taking the resources, the land itself, but the displacement of people, um, the force, the forced subjugation of people, of protesters, of, of peaceful protesters. There's um, for, for for years and years there's been protests and um, roadblocks, people putting their literal bodies on the line. To stop the construction, to try to stop the you know um, the equipment itself from getting up into the into the mountain and, and starting the construction, so people have been arrested, people have been hurt. It's been a long, long battle. It's been, it's been sensationalized on social media as well, um, and, and it's uh, it's always a very uh, complex issue. But it boils down to the U.S. using state violence um, to secure quote unquote. Um, f- uh, for in the name of science, you know, that's the excuse. And it's it's technically not the U.S. government. It's it's the National Science uh, Association, um, I think, um, because then the, the issue is if, if the U.S. becomes more involved, is, is it going to become more violent, right? Yeah. And um, you, I feel like you could personally attest to this because do you remember, I, I don't know if it's, if it's really called this, uh, the San Marcos Pass, is that what it's called, the preserve? Yeah. That was happening in town, correct? Correct. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the same thing. People were putting their themselves their bodies on the line um, in front of bulldozers and and tractors that were wanting to plow that in the, in the nature reserve in the San Marcos foothills in order to make like eight homes, like eight mansions, right? Multi million dollar, uh, a multi million dollar little neighborhood uh, that would have been gated off. That would have been. Um, the, exploiting the the natural beauty of the land and the the, the wildlife the there. Oh, the, yeah, of course, the wildlife being completely disrupted. The the natural cycles of of, of the plants and the animals would be disrupted, um, and the people that still use that as as one of the last spaces that's like not completely colonized, right? Um, people go there to forage. People go there. Um, for for ceremonial purposes, people go there for social purposes, um, and it's just a space that that does not need to be colonized any 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 yeah. further. Yeah. And did did you guys succeed in that? Is it not happening now, or did you guys just delay the process? Um, well, the, the 
effort um, in general was successful in stopping the proposed construction. Uh, I personally was not super involved with the intricacies of it because obviously every movement is um, has many sides to it and um, many different ideologies and many different players and actors in it. I, um, uh, I was only involved to a certain degree. Um, but I know that the folks that put themselves in the line, the folks that were arrested, that were detained, um, definitely pushed forward the movement and put it in the limelight to the point where um, there was enough outrage that it, there was no way it was going to be constructed without... I mean, there was people coming from LA, coming from across uh, the counties, across the state to come support. There was people camping out right there. Um, and and it had culminated into people being rounded up, right? Um, uh, predominantly Chumash femme and women of color were, were rounded up, even though there was there was ma- male, there was men there, there was people, there was white folk there, um, but the ones that were targeted were specifically the heart of the movement, right? The the, the principal organizers, which happened to be uh, indigenous women predominantly, and that just goes to show you like the the lengths and the effort that um, a nation state like that will go to like the they the, the the threat that they feel um from unarmed peaceful protesters who are singing and chanting to try and disrupt extractivism the, it's such a threat to the US they're willing to use like physical force um so why did you get into chicano studies personally um well My political journey itself started from a young age, just living in a mixed status household. Um, and, you know, you encounter the, the I, I mentioned the nation state a lot, like the, the U.S. as as a, a colonial power because of, of the tactics that it still uses and the strategies and its own agenda. Um, it's still very much invested in displacement of people in the demonization of indigenous people and in the invalidation of 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 uh, indigenous people being having the right to exist on on this land being treated as foreigners is what I, is what i'm trying to say um yeah so i mean encounters with ice uh, from a young age uh family separation as the encountering how there are parts of the system that work kind of behind the scenes and even where like folks don't see or are like even when you tell them they they like refuse to believe that it's true like um before a lot of documentaries and stuff like that if you like uh talked about stories from uh detention centers and stuff like that a lot of folks didn't believe like what was what's what's been going down there you know people chained up people in, in in cages terrible conditions, being forced to sign their own deportation. So all these things, like, unfortunately, it just was around while I was growing up and ended up inevitably, for sure, like, influencing my own just perspective on the place that I was living in, in relation to the place where my folks lived, came from, you know. Um, my place as a quote-unquote citizen of this uh, colonial society and how that benefits me compared to, like, my family who 
just didn't happen to be born here like what privilege does it does that grant you know how how those dynamics play off um all, all the all these things kind of just interacting with uh me interacting with all these things opened my eyes to you know other people don't really uh have to go through a lot of these things and then what other things do i do i not have to go through right that that folks are constantly dealing with so like that as a young age will open up your mind to um questioning just kind of in general questioning uh the way things work and sometimes learning uh seeking knowledge feels like what what am i really learning this for i'm just learning a bunch of like fucked up stuff like um when you're really focusing on colonization on on liberation movements it can sometimes feel a little exhausting like you're just learning about all this stuff but it's incredibly empowering just to have knowledge just just to not be in the dark because that's that's what uh, empowers uh imperial powers like the US to keep going is when folks don't talk about it when when it's not being brought up so just the very fact that uh, more people know i think is incredibly powerful when we're when sometimes we feel stuck when we're learning something like where 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 is this taking me uh, the power of knowing in itself is 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 very empowering um and it it brings into question all these things yeah and you mes- you mentioned like reading all these depressive uh things right how do you find that balance where it's like you're able to take this information in and ho- like hopefully letting it not affect you to the point where you know you kind of go crazy yourself like where you're able to be um um like proactive with it instead of it letting you like letting it break you down you know because it's a lot of fucked up shit like realizing that there's segregation in oxnard you know like the whole went in like request the continuation school in the santa barbara school district you know things like that that were kind of you know people were getting sent to that you know didn't have another option um well i mean ignorance is bliss when when you're just not aware of these things that might seem like you're just living in a perfect world like people are just complaining all the time about not having things or maybe they just didn't work hard enough um and then you know if, if once you actually really start looking at i'm not saying you have to go to like a established university or something you don't have to like that's not the only way to become educated but w- once you do start really observing the world and seeing uh, your place in it in in terms of uh, the society and how your society you live in and how that's been structured. Um, I think it's natural to start questioning all these things. Um, and it just gives you a better perspective and a better context of like where we are and how going forward, you know, seeing how politicians act is not so surprising, knowing the history of, of this country, like what's the real agenda? You know, sometimes you'll you'll be confused by what's going on, but then you realize uh, what's really going on underneath, like the, the agenda of of a, a nation like ours. Yeah, and that's only what we're able to see, you know, like even behind those doors, there's sure. other shit happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you said you were a first generation college student. Yeah. So how, yeah. How, do you, how do you navigate that? Like with kind of no help, unless you have like counselors and advisors helping you out, but you probably don't have family members like myself that like, you know, uh, say, oh, you should take this class. You shouldn't take this class. Oh, like, what do you want to like be? It's kind of you're you're by yourself until you have that counselor, you have that professor that kind of helps you out. Definitely. I mean, shout out to Ozzy. Shout out to um, Brian Zuniga um, from the Chicano Studies Department. The, our, my, um, 
advisors um, from EOP, advisors, the undergraduate advisors from Chicana Studies Department for really just putting me like in the right path. It's just sometimes you just need people to explain to you how stuff works. You know, like you you come into somewhere not knowing the the like formula, not knowing the sometimes it feels like there's an unspoken rule, right, in academia and in especially in higher education. So you need someone to kind of like give you the the what's what, like show you the ropes a little bit. Because if not, you can go through the whole thing and just realize that you missed out on this opportunity, that opportunity, or, you know, you'll end up really not not feeling like you're a part of it. I think that's where the imposter syndrome comes in a lot too for first-generation students. Feeling like you missed, you missed the memo or something. Like everyone else seems to know what they're doing, but and we're over here like, uh, it's trying to navigate our way around campus and stuff like that, not knowing about oh, you know, all these resources or or just how the way things work. The even way knowing how to study like correctly, yeah, exactly. or, you know? Yeah, or even yeah. having a place to study, even having yeah. like, like I would go to class and then I had like an hour or so before work, you know, and then I would get off at eight and then uh, I, I live out of town. So I would have to drive like an hour or so back home. And by the time you get home, it's like 10 and like personally, you know, I, I as I would have my son um, half the time. So and then trying to find time to do homework, trying to do the readings, all of that uh, is definitely uh, stressful. Yeah, and you were pretty young when you had your son, right? Yeah. Were you in high school or was that college? Senior year, high school. Senior. Yeah. How was that? Was that kind of shocking to you, or or did you feel like, oh, like I like you know I'm ready for this? Nah, I mean it was definitely shocking, brother. Yeah, it was. It's like. Um, at a young age, now looking back, I definitely didn't understand a lot of things, and that's it's its own situation because of how young I was and my the point in uh, my life that I was in. But uh, currently uh, living as a single father right now, I'm happy where I'm at with 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 you know me and my son. I uh, have a joint custody, so I have 50 percent of the time. Um, and that that's uh, its own challenge as being a father and a student. Um, uh, being young has always been a challenge. And that's just kind of in the background of all that. Like, you know, being the youngest one at pickup at school or whatnot. Like, that, that, that's just always, like, in the background. But um, the parenting and the schooling aspect of it is, uh, is more prominent. Um, but it feels nice to at least be a positive role model for um for 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 him for educational journey in general um yeah i feel very fortunate to be a father um and, and all the hardships that i've had to go through yeah has it taught you as much do you think that's like something that you needed at the time um or yeah, just like I mean, the way it turned out yeah i mean i think things are things happen for a reason and they end up uh working out um yeah, I mean, it's very com- complex um, for me personally, but uh, I feel like right now I'm at a good place. Um, yeah, and definitely I, I, I learn things from my son every single day. Yeah, yeah does he understand what like, being Mexican is or like Chicano? I mean... Are you still kind of too I young? I think it's something that you grow, you understand more as you interact with folks that are not part of your community because it's not like I wake up every day, I'm like, hey, we're Chicano. Like, and it's like, <laughs> no, like we just, you just are. It's just know? life, right? Yeah, Reality we just, I guys. take them to, to dance practice. Yeah. You know, I'll take them uh, through campus. 
you know, I'll tell him about history. If he has questions that are tough, like he's at the age right now where he's asking like, <laughs> like strangely philosophical questions sometimes. So I'll try to give my best answer. Dude, kids and, do that a lot. Yeah. I mean, you just got to be honest. I, I hated being told like, oh, you understand when you're older or, you know, or, or when sometimes you also just need a grown up to just tell you that they don't know the answer. Yeah. That's important too. So you say that you want to like teach, right? Are you, do you want to teach in high school, city college, or like university level? I enjoy teaching uh, after high school. So I've, uh, so city college students is what I have my most experience with. I stay, I don't, I don't, why would I, I wouldn't mind teaching at a university? Um, it's just a different uh, requirements, requirements, right? You have to write, correct, yeah. write a few books and articles, and you have to keep on pushing throughout your your tenure there. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the school. It depends yeah. on the, the UCs are really like you know strict about, about it about research. Yeah. yeah, about writing. Yeah, so that's if you have like a focus you know, about you know you're really big on research, you really have projects and stuff. Definitely, that's something that they expect. City college is more uh, connected to the community itself. Um, interacting more teaching more yeah it really fascinates me that um you know uh carrasco like is like is he the chair at yeah him leading it over there it seems really cool you know he seems very involved with it you know which he could easily be at a uc right because he went to uc berkeley and like he's you know well versed but you know he seems to be taking a big role over there which is really yeah, good to see you know he was my first chicano studies i took 103 which is uh art and culture so we like, you know, we watched the Zoot Suit movie and, and, and things like that. Yeah. yeah, man. You know, a lot of good things happen at City College. I think uh, the whole uh, ethnic studies department in general has really solid teachers. They, they all care about the students a lot. Um, the classes I've all ta- I've taken with Professor Carrasco are all very inspiring for sure. I mean, that's that's what, what got me into, into the major. Um, partially, that's what got me into the, the tutoring program. Um, and that's what's inspired me to uh, pursue the degree further, you know, um, not just the AA or a BA, but PhD, you know, um, because why not? That, that's kind of that's kind of what I was told. Like, I, I don't know if I can. I don't feel like like that's me, that kind of person, you know, um, uh, it seems like 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 doctor, like like grad school is is such a closed off community. And basically he was just like, well, why not? You know, like you could. Yeah. Um, and after you get the degree, what does it feel like? A BA? A BA? Yeah, BA. Like, what does that feel like to you since you're the first in your family to get that? Is it kind of unreal? Do you feel like it's... At the, I mean, at the same time, I don't know. I mean, nothing really changes. I mean, I've just been going to school for... Right? It just feels yeah. like I've just been going to school. Um, and I mean, the degree is just the receipt that you yeah. get at the end of the year paying tuition yeah, for you four years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the knowledge, it <laughs> comes down to like how and where you apply the knowledge, right? And like how you actually use it. Um, you could have like your regular day-to-day job that's not specifically in your field, but for, for a field like Chicanic Studies, I feel like gives you a lot of tools that you can use in your day-to-day. Um, and even if it's just like the knowledge of having like the historical context of, of a nation where we live in will help you just navigate the world in whatever field you're in yeah and you seem very community oriented what would you say your role is in in that community uh i think everyone's role in the community is is a a big theme is sacrifice um to put put the community um 
put the community forward because the community puts us forward. No one is self-made, right? Everyone, everyone has a background. Everyone was uplifted by someone or, or some people. Everyone has a community that um, helped, helped uplift them. Um, and even if you think you came up alone, like you can think of someone whose shoulders you're standing on, right? So even if I am the first gen uh, of my family, I mean, I'm standing on the shoulders of my, my siblings who they were the first gen to graduate high school, right? Uh, my, my older brothers. Were they born in the U.S. or no? No. Yeah. So, I mean. That, You're the youngest? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that was an, uh, its own challenge. Same. Them, yeah. But, I have yeah. two older brothers. They're both born in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, we stand on their shoulders, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and our parents who even put us in this position to be here. Uh, no, our grand, our grandparents. My my grandfather was, I think, the first to come to the U.S. Uh, as a bracero in the bracero program. So as a as a um, like farmer field worker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he would be taken from the rural pueblo in Mexico, uh, shipped out here to the north um, for a few months um, to the field, and then sent back, and then back and forth, and that's how they. They they tried to get their 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 money, which didn't really end up end up being very lucrative. But yeah, it's interesting how, how that happens, like why they have to like get them and then send them back, you know, as opposed to like you know letting them stay here. Well, yeah, of course, because the U.S. wouldn't want <laughs> yeah. them to to live here, and it was during during the during World War II, so oh. there was a shortage of, of oh, yeah. workers in general, and so they would go into Mexico, and they there there was a binational policy of the Bracero program had the Mexico, Mexico send people to the border and the U.S. would basically give them temporary contracts to different ranchos or to different uh, private private um, places and use them for cheap labor, exploit mm. them for cheap labor. And then it wasn't just fields too. Uh, it was railroads. It was highways. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the most like shocking facts that you came across during this journey? My educational journey in yeah. general? Um, I don't think there's anything that shocks me anymore. Like there's devastating things that I learned that put into the context of everything else that I've learned, for lack of a better word, makes sense. Yeah, so like there are still things that are like atrocious that I learned. Like in this last quarter, I took a class that focused a lot on the history of uh, contemporary history of uh, what's now called Guatemala. Um, and I mean, the state violence, the state sponsored violence from 1960 to 1996 uh, is just completely revolting, right? But then, I mean, that's what nation states do. That's how they operate. That's how they treat indigenous people. Uh, that's that's the formula. It's it's genocide. It's land displacement. It's foreign investment. It's extractivism. So, um, uh, in that aspect, you learn. I mean, devastating things all the time. At the same time, you're learning about the guerrilla resistance. You're learning about indigenous uh, cultures still being um, still being uplifted and valued and practiced in the face of oppression and in the face of um, imperialism. So, I mean, at the same time, it's not just depre depressive. You it's can powerful. you can find empowering, yeah. empowering voices. Yeah, I just took a Chicano studies class. I, I felt that same way. Even seeing you, like you were making the was it a magazine or what was it called for my final? Yeah, I made a, a zine. <clears throat> Even seeing that, seeing those uh, 
symbols or figures i was like wow that's like so cool to see you know that's like a part of our our culture you know lineage so what did that mean what do those symbols mean uh, and what the, are they called yeah so for that class it was um, with professor giovanni Batz, and he's one of the newer prof- professors in the chicanx studies department um, highly recommend very very good professor um very very knowledgeable and well-versed uh decolonial framework from the very beginning of class um so for that for that final, I uh, my my creative project was making a zine, um, but and I've made zines before, and I wanted to do a little different. And something that I learned from Professor Celia from the Chicanx Studies Department is how to make a codex. Um, and a codex would, is an ancient uh, style of Mesoamerican book or manuscript that basically folds out uh, in accordion style, and it goes from right to left. Um, and that was the that was what I based my my zine off of, kind of to honor non-Western forms of knowledge, um, and to honor, I mean, all the all the other all the codices that were made by our ancestors that were burned in the thousands of book burnings that took away generational knowledge. And uh, I used some of the glyphs that we learned in class um, that had to do with the day, the day symbols and the, the calendar system for Maya people specifically. And the symbols, I, I, the glyphs I used uh, basically were to um, represent the theme that each, pla- each panel in the codex was going to be about. So um, it, w- it corresponded to the material that I had on each page. Yeah. Do you know anything about the deciphering of those symbols? Yeah, uh, in academia, obviously, because like uh, Maya people never had to decipher them. There's still Maya people that that speak their indigenous language. Um, but in academia, I was like a Russian guy who was just obsessed with linguistics and, um, you know, uh, was able to, quote unquote, decipher, you know, a lot of uh, hieroglyphs um, in a way that is valued by Western academia, you know, writing it down or recording it. Um, breaking it down in linguistic form. So in that aspect, yeah, it, it was. And it, would, would you say that was accurate? Like his interpretation or his deciphering of it, was it actually accurate to what it actually meant? Or was it kind of just the aspect of him doing it I was kind of messed up? That's the thing. I mean, I don't speak Maya, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how do I know, right? Exactly. But uh, the people still speak. I mean, you could go to like. Parts of Mexico and Guatemala, right? Right, right. And in that classroom, we learned the term, uh, the Mayab. So, um, and my, my final project was called uh, Decolonizing Anthropological Research Within the Mayab. And the Mayab is uh, a term, an indigenous term used by Mayab people to refer to uh, the Mayan world, for lack of a better word, like the, the sphere of influence, the, the place physically where, where the Maya people live and, and uh, multicultural and um, different different languages, but, but generally Maya, and that is used to decentralize uh, from the nation state. So uh, the Mayab includes several, several nations, Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, um, but those borders cut through Maya land indiscriminately. So instead of referencing those borders, we just talk about the people themselves when the mm-hmm. land they live is the Mayab. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, because a lot of it, you know, intersects between different countries, right? Right, right. Yeah. right. And how, like, just out of curiosity, uh, how accurate do you think uh, the the 
generation that lives now of the Mayan people, how accurate would you say that is to, you know, their ancestors? Do you think some has been lost through time and kind of like uh, colonialism, right? I mean, I don't think uh, there is accurate or inaccurate uh, practice of culture. I mean, there's they've they're still there. I mean, the, they're the direct descendants of the the ancient Maya that are studied in museums, right? Um, and the narrative is that they disappeared or that they vanished, um, which is uh, used to reinforce the erasure of Maya people. If they don't exist, then you can take their land and there's no one to fight back. Um, and that narrative is used to, to uh, justify... Uh, genocide to justify uh, exploitation and extractivism. So the Maya people are still very much still alive and uh, connected to their culture, just as much as they have been. If anything, now it's used. It, it, it has been used more as a form of um, decolonial resistance, um, because it's not only a way to to connect with with your ancestral ways of life, but in a colonial world that wants you to stop doing that. That, that doesn't value indigenous, non-Western ways of knowledge, tradition, connections to the land. The simple act of going back to that or the simple act of continuation of that tradition is a form of decolonizing, is a way to break down um, those structures that were made to keep us you know, silent. Yeah, I really like how you phrased that. Kind of um, the way I pictured it when you said that, it, was, it seemed like, it's an evolution, like it's not just stagnant. Just how like language and things evolve here in the United States, like it's like the same for them, right? Are you saying there's no wrong way to practice culture? Very right, interesting. Right, and uh, colonization is always going to uh, muddy things. There's always mm-hmm. going to be a syncretism, a combination of cultures. Uh, Mexican Catholicism is not the same as Spanish Catholicism, right? We have indigenous, de- indigenous concepts uh, hiding as uh, Christian deities within Catholicism in Mexico. And um, it's not really spoken about openly or like that. It's like understood mm-hmm. that there's a lot of things in Catholicism in Mexico that are indigenous to Mexico, um, but that are uh, accepted as, as Catholicism. And some of them are not accepted by the church. Is Would you say the Virgin Mary or the yeah, Virgen de Guadalupe, right? Because yeah. that was a me- that happened in Mexico, as the story yeah, tells probably, it, right? Probably the, one of the most famous cases of what I was talking about um, in the early 1500s, 1530s, when the church was having issues evangelizing the indigenous people because their practice was not... Indigenous spirituality is not... It's not a religion. It's not an institution. It's not, there's no church to go to. It's a day-to-day interaction with your environment, with the natural world, with your ancestors. Um, So it's not, it wasn't easy for them to just transfer over to Christianity, a very structured and a very institutionalized um, um, system with ranks and with very complex caste systems. Uh, So part of the tactic to evangelize people that they used was to, co-opt indigenous traditions, indigenous concepts, and see what they could use to fit into a Christian narrative. And in the in the case of La Virgen de Guadalupe, um, Guadalupe being a place in Spain, um, a, a river in Spain uh, connected to the Mother Mary, right? But that version of the Mother Mary was used in Mexico. Um, and the story goes... Uh, that it was found by an indigenous 
an, an indigenous man named Juan Diego was collecting roses in the mountain of Tepeyac, uh, where where this uh, apparition of the Virgin Mary uh, appeared to him, right, looking like an indigenous woman. Um, but but Tepeyac, the place where he was at, it was the place where they had temples to uh, Tonantzin. Uh, that was the traditional place to go uh, venerate and give your ofrendas to uh, the concept of Mother Earth, Tonantzin Tlalicuatlicue, um, uh, the representation of nature. Um, and so her motifs and her, her theme was co-opted and turned into the Virgin Mother of, of Jesus Christ. And so the elements of Tonantzin were renamed um, under La Virgen de Guadalupe and used to evangelize uh, indigenous people. Uh, and that was probably our, the most famous example of, of indigenous culture being uh, evangelized, being used in order to further colonization. Yeah. yeah. Dang, dude. You remember that? Yeah, that's no, prominent, bro. Dude, also that pronunciation of, of that word, what language was that? Uh, that is Nahuatl. And is that uh, indigenous, like Mexican? Um, yeah, so it's spoken by several million people in Mexico and in central Mexico, where uh, the Mexica uh, were from, a quote unquote Aztec. Um, but the language itself is not uh, from central Mexico. It, it, the language migrated down from the north, um, uh, originating from the Four Corners region of the southwest, like uh, Colorado, Utah area. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Uto Azteca language oh, group. So like the, Ute, the Utes, um, uh, a, a lot of other languages that um, are related, including Nahuatl, came mm-hmm. from, from there. Uh, Nahuatl being, I think, the one that made it furthest down south. So it's spoken all the way down to Yucatan. Yeah, and I did want to ask you, did you learn anything about the ancient, uh, you know, archaeological findings of Mexico? Like the pyramids, the... Uh, and things like that, or not too much. Somewhat, uh, Chicano studies. The courses that I've taken focused more on contemporary mm. history and the political aspect of it, um, in regards to decolonizing liberation. Um, but, I mean the. Like the history classes that you'll take will dive into it a bit, but not as much as like an archaeology class might would. Like oh, into I the see. Actual that makes structures a lot of sense. Of yeah. yeah. Um, but then again, that the archaeology is a very white um, field that was um, initiated by grave robbers and, and mm-hmm. racist tropes. Yeah. So like that's another thing. I, I studied anthropology <laughs> and archaeology a little bit in City College, and that's one thing that was very clear. And it's not something they shy about from. They're very clear. It was started by you know people grave robbing yeah. and and being a little curious about the things that they stole, and that's how archaeology became fascinated by material culture and quote unquote artifacts. Um, but the issue with that is that it romanticizes and glorifies things that are ancient. Um, like we were saying, everyone wants to like we we like uh, the stuff that's in the museums, but. Um, not the descendants of the people that made it who are still alive. So Dude. indigenous indigenous works of art um, are pr- prized in the museum when they're looked at as ancient or rare. But there's still people being you yeah. know alive right now who are being exploited. 
there's irony in there for sure. Dude. Yeah, definitely. That dude, that gave me chills because I was like, damn, that, that's that's crazy. And how how connected would you say you feel like with Mexico? Have you ever been? Yeah, definitely. Um, several times being a, uh, you know, coming from a mixed status household, a lot of, uh, I was the only one that could go. So I, from a young age, I was uh, uh, traveling alone, maybe since like 12 or so. Um, I feel a connection to the land where my grandparents are from uh, in Aguascalientes, in the high desert, mesas. Um, I feel very at home there. Uh, don't necessarily only identify with the nation state of Mexico. Like I feel like I'm repeating that term a lot, but it's very prominent. We forget that it, it, it's just a, 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 a nation, a nationality. It, you know, it's not the identity. It's not, it's not, it's also a um, colonial creation, right? It has its own borders. Mexico has its own anti-immigration policies. It's, it's, um, imperial in its own kind of way so i identify with the people but it's a uh, it can be i feel like it can be dangerous to identify with a nation state so loyal so loyally you know like that's where you get issues dude that is such a good point see that's where i think that your education and all the information like really comes in because you're able to critically think about that whereas like i obviously again like I'm exactly what you're saying. You know, like, I'm just, like, proud to be Mexican, but what does that actually mean? And hearing you say I'm like, damn, that's, like, that's so interesting, you know? Yeah. I would like to learn more about that's that. That's not to say, like, you shouldn't identify yeah. as Mexican. Like, it's I know deeper what you're than mean. just, like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's, like, just one thing. But you're saying it's, like, yeah. it's like we're people, you know? We're not yeah. just, like, borders and, and you know? Yeah, and I think when people do identify with being Mexican or, or Latino or whatever, that's what they mean. And, and the essence, yeah. you know, they mean, you know, the the, the, the cultural connection, that's, they don't necessarily uh, are trying to glorify like the government, like, <laughs> right? But that's yeah. what I mean. Like, and that's why we use terms like the Mayab, um, yeah. because that's centralizing the land and the people who live on it, not uh, validating all these borders or whatnot, which are, you know, they're cutting up the world. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, bro. Heck yeah. And I also know that you do danza, right? Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, um, uh, I've been practicing Lanza Mexicayo for a few years. That's a, multi, a multi-layered tradition um, spanning back from pre-colonial times um, as a form of prayer, as a form of a spiritual um, tradition. But in, in, in indigenous societies, uh, Culture, spirituality, politics, art, science, um, mathematics were not completely separate from one another. Um, rather, they interacted and would be influenced and existed within one another. So um, it's not just a religious, quote-unquote, or a spiritual practice. There's a lot of elements of um, history, culture, um, in modern times, it's used with a lot of political context. Um, there's a lot of math involved, astronomy, like like uh, teachings and not and lessons and knowledge passed down through physical motion, through dance and and song. Um, but it's it's physical motion. It's it's uh, uh, kinetic prayer, 
moving with your whole body and 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 connection with the drum with the heartbeat representing the heartbeat of the earth um connecting with the earth directly with your feet and it's it's it includes several elements man that um come together to create a environment where where you're experiencing the disconnection that it's hard to explain but the elements include um i mean you you yourself are are constantly in motion so the the physical exhaustion puts you into a specific like headspace like a runner's high right yeah so so yeah yeah and you and and the the constant um movement uh that that heat that you feel um and you're connecting it with the beat of the drum so that has its own dynamic going on where the drum is following your feet and uh there's like a symbiosis and 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 with with the with the motion and the sound along with that i mean the the scent and the smells of the copal and the sage that are being burned the sounds of the rattles and the chachayotas and it's all coming together all these elements uh, involving one another and influencing each other for for this ultimate experience that you're um, participating in and your motion and your own sound and your own sweat is adding to this mixture of elements and this all of these aspects that come together to make a ceremony and would you say that that's more a connection with the earth rather than traditional kind of you know sacred things that would be kind of doing that to a higher power like you know god quote unquote you know is it is it more like a connection with the earth as opposed to a you know a god um yeah i I would say um like when you mean like traditionally you mean like a judeo-christian yeah you know how like when someone prays when someone like when they sing the choir it's usually right yeah right it's it's like venerating and worshiping a like a single deity or a god or something no no yeah it's definitely not like that at all um in fact like i would argue that we don't really have deities or gods it's uh concepts that was my next question motifs um elements of nature interest that are either personified or um represented through different ways but it's not like uh, like we're praying to like a being that we believe you know is like looking over us or anything like that it's it's an honoring of uh the different processes of nature of of um the cosmos uh, and it influences our world view how you interact with the world uh changes if you respect the water in a different way if you see the water as your relative if you see the wind if you see the sun in different ways um not as uh, things to be used, you know, the world, not something to be used or, or a tool for humanity, but a, a, a connection, a relation, you know. Mm. They also use cuisine, correct? I know that pozole, like, dates back really far into, like, the indigenous culture and what is now Mexico, right? Uh, a lot uh- a lot of Mexican cuisine goes way back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and then we can we can talk about indigenous corn, um, maize, right? Correct. Yeah, and that's indigenous um, uh, botany and science. The the three sisters, um, astronomy, beans, squash, and corn. Mm. Um, those are all things that uh, Mesoamerica gave to the world that are still used right now by the rest of the world. That's I mean, crazy. Uh, they even created some very intricate like uh, aqueducts, right? In some of the yeah, man. I mean, you'll be surprised. The, the 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 entire continent, from the top of Alaska to the bottom of of uh, what we call Chile now, it was filled with with indigenous people that had complex societies at different levels. You know, and it wasn't just like one specific culture that 
evolved enough to have like aqueducts or not. I mean, it, this was like um, a truly continent-spanning um, societies that had uh, very sophisticated levels of um, civilization at different times and at different ad, uh, advancements at those different times. I mean, you'll see aqueducts, you see uh, draw bridges, man-made lakes, uh, floating lakes, floating floating villages like like um, how Mexico Tenochtitlan was slowly built on on Lake Texcoco with the with is the that Mexico City? Of Chinampas, yeah. So <laughs> it's so, still a floating city, right? Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's been drained by by the Spanish, uh, and it's sinking, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all, 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 a lot of uh, there's a lot of civilizations across Mexico Damn. that had a lot of technical technological advancements that we would consider uh, rare or something like that. Like maybe like the, the Romans had it, yeah. but when you study um, just Native America, you realize how much advancement there was here. There was metallurgy. There was I could even argue, and I don't know, maybe you too, like it, it seems almost more complex than some of, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Their and counterparts. It, and and it, you can't judge like uh, uh, people by the standard of a different people, right? Like there's just different resources in the quote unquote old world, mm-hmm. right? By the Mediterranean and Europe and Asia. There's just different animals, different resources, different geography. Like geography in Mesoamerica had such a huge influence in the way, like, mm-hmm. why there's not that many roads. Right, like why why Rome was so successful in building so many roads, and like when you use that logic and you go to the to the Mesoamerica and you're like, well, they couldn't do that. <laughs> There's well, no I mean, you, you you tried building in the jungle, you know, <laughs> like it's different. They had completely different challenges and different answers to those challenges. And they really lived off the land, right? They were like, you know, immersed with it. Um, yeah, I mean, just a. Uh, I, w- I would also be careful to like not glorify it too much. Like indigenous people were like super like. Kumbaya, you know, everybody, because then, because then that's used also to like, well, they were also killing each other and stuff like that. And that's used like to justify genocide. And, and yeah. uh, humans are humans. There was always war and conflict, but uh, you can't really use that to compare it to colonization in any yeah. degree. Or- well, even in modern day, there's still war right now, like in 2023. And it's funny that like people, I don't know, don't really point that out. You know, it's kind of just more normalized. But if you think about in the context back then, people just say, oh, these people were crazy or whatnot, you know, or blood hungry. Dang. Yeah, is there anything else you want to touch on? Anything you want to teach me, dude? Because I'm learning a lot, dude. I'm like, I'm just like, damn, like, I'm so ignorant, you know? Nah, man. I mean, I think uh, it's a state where, where, uh, the system wants you to be in mm. because you don't want to be questioning all these things. You don't want to know that the biggest pyramid in, in North America is in the U S um, you don't, they don't want us to know that there are thousands and thousands of archeological sites throughout the U S just like Mexico or just like any other country, but they're not talked about here because yeah. then that raises the question of who is here first. You just mentioned that you kept mentioning like, you know, the whole North America, you because usually I feel like a lot of people just focus on on that area, right? Of like Mexico and like below or above. Yeah. But yeah, you were mentioning a lot, like you were including like Utah and Colorado and stuff. I mean, I, again, like if I didn't, that would just be validating the borders and that the, the non-existent lines the, um, that separate our people. There really is no difference between between. It's just land, and and there's different cultures that span that that land, but it's it's one people. Yeah. And um, 
Do you, yeah, do you have anything you want to touch on? Because I feel like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just very important to like uh, challenge yourself to, to wonder like how, how, what was really going on here before uh, uh, European invasions. So one thing that uh, Professor Carrasco reiterated in his class is that like, every square mile of the U.S., was was covered with brown people. Like there's this idea, this myth that the that uh, the Puritans came here to an empty continent, ready for them to colonize, and maybe there was a few uh, natives at the beginning with with the first Thanksgiving and whatnot, and that's the extent of what's talked about. Uh, but every step along the way of the U.S. expanding, there was theft and. Uh, uh, displacement of people because I, I, there was no part of the U.S. that just wasn't used by indigenous people that wasn't inhabited already for thousands of years. Um, and that goes all the way down and up the continent. So just uh, constantly remind yourself that anywhere you step on uh, anywhere on this continent, there was there's a history there that goes before the colonies, before imperial um, nations like this. Yeah, and some of the tribes... I. I could have the number wrong, but you could please correct me on that. It was like for the Shoemaster, it was like 33,000 or was there more? Um, I'm not an expert with... Um, I think Ozzy was telling me, the count, the EOPS counselor, he was yeah. talking about like the, the little mountain where the airport is. Specifically for the US, for uh, UCSB, it was on a village site. I'm not, I don't know how much the population yeah. was, but there were several villages right yeah. there by the airport. Um, and, Santa, oh. and Santa Barbara as well. And definitely in the tens of thousands. I mean, I, I know um, particularly uh, food was very plentiful here. Um, acorns and marine life mm. was able to sustain a lot of people, um, even without the use of agriculture. And that's not to say that just because you don't use agriculture, you're not advanced. If you don't need it, there's other ways. Yeah. There's more There's yeah, more than exactly. one solution. Yeah. So that's part of like... Um, the narrative that is used to primit- prim- like make primitive and indigenous people make them seem as they were stuck in the, in the stone age or something yeah. like that. If you're not similar to Western cultures, then that means you're not involved yet. Yeah, if you're not civilized, if you're still like, you know, freaking camping out or whatnot. That, and that would be like the narrative that they want to push. Like what is civilized, right? That is beautiful. All right, man. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, I mean, I don't know. Is there, do you have any other questions? That was something that I could clarify. Yeah. What is the most, like you would say the most misconception, the biggest misconception regarding Chicano studies? I think for students coming into Chicano studies, a big question we have is like, what can we even do with this? And that's a, a tough question to ask because sometimes the best answer is, you know, it gives you tools to be able to interact with the world in a more knowledgeable way so that you're not being exploited and you understand the context of how the world, this Western world works. Um, uh, for us as, as indigenous people, understanding our place and our context in it, um, that in and of itself is very useful, but it can also give you the tools, like I said, to get into higher academia, um, uh, it, you know, you, you can you can expand that field to however you want. There's there's research being done right now. I was recently part of a research group that was looking into the effects of migration on um, folks that are older than 50. So like mm. if you're documented, undocumented, and if you never migrated at all, um, how does that affect your aging, your mental health, mm. your physical health? And what about the children of them? Like if you're already, you spend your whole life being born here, 
but your folks are from you know from from Mexico. Like that's that's one of the things that I was part of um, last year. So yeah. so it, you can take and that's kind of like a health approach, right? Yeah. Like a health and wellness approach. Yeah, even the connectedness because my mom's in that situation where she yeah. calls back to her sister yeah. that still lives in Mexico. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, dang, dude. Yeah, and you could even apply, like, let's say you get an underground uh, undergrad in um, Intercontinental Studies. You could apply it to communication, psychology, sociology, archaeology. Like, Definitely. there's so many fields yeah. that you go into. Like, I know my my comp, comp professor didn't do Chicano Studies at all. I think she just stuck to uh, to communication, but she does... She studies family separation. Yeah. Not just, like, with Latinos and stuff or Latinx people, but, like, also, you know... Asian descent among others. So yeah, you could apply it to a lot of things. And she's like studying with another la- Latina as well. Uh, she she works at the University of Houston, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And she used to, uh, she was her student oh, here at UCSB. So yeah, you could apply to so many things. Yeah, it's versatile for sure. And helping the community, like yeah, like that. And, that, and that's always like the bottom line is like giving back to the community. Like the whole reason Chicano studies exists is because of the community and for the community. Yeah. Trying to get more rasa to come to higher education, um, into these positions where it's not just a white centric world, Eurocentric academia, um, and you apply it wherever you want. And the best part is when you find out how it best fits you and your community the skills you learn and the way that you use them. Yeah. Like you said, applying them with something else or, you know. Heck yeah. Even even graduating, like seeing you graduate motivates me and motivates like the community. Thank you. Yeah, heck yeah. Because like, you know, if someone does it that that looks like you, it's like, oh, you know, I could do it, you know. Right. And that's how I felt too when <laughs> Professor Carrasco was like, yeah, why not? Get your PhD. You know? yeah. Go go further. Get your BA. You know, it's the same way. Like you, it, it's the job of the previous ones to try to inspire, at least open the door of possibility to, to more. And yeah, I think yeah, that's bro. one thing that is used. Um, it's also decolonial de- in the essence that it goes against the individualist mindset that is very uh, focused on here in, in the U.S., in the Western society. Individualism, right? Capitalism, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Um, I don't believe in that. I, I don't think anyone is self-made. And we all stand on people's shoulders, like mm-hmm. I was saying earlier. So, I mean, that's that's the whole point of being in a community-centric field like Chicanx Studies is that we are pushing for uh, communal inclusion and the benefit of all a world where many worlds fit, right? To go to like Zapatista uh, ideologies. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. Well, I really appreciate you like, you know, enlightening me with some of this knowledge that I wasn't aware of, you know, whether I like, you know, subconsciously knew it or not, like very interesting and very powerful, you know? Hell yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm more than welcome to uh, break down anything else or talk yeah, about dude, anything we, else. Yeah, dude, yeah. Nothing comes to mind, honestly. I just, I'm not well versed in that world again. Yeah. But I mean, I'd love to have you back, dude, eventually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Well, thank you so much for Gracias. coming on, dude. Hell yeah. Thank you. Thank you.